Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the latest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, Sport Business U.S. Editor. Back from a uh, week of vacation here. Appreciate the patience here. And we are uh, back with our regularly scheduled programming. And as always, I'm joined here by uh, Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. Uh, How are we doing this week? Doing very well, Eric. Welcome back. Well, thank you very much, and uh, you know, no rest for the uh, for the rested. I guess now, uh, you know, it was a great uh, piece of time off here, and now we're right back into it with uh, perhaps the busiest August that I can remember. We've been sort of talking about how uh, active the cadence of deal making has been for weeks here, as we've gotten into what has traditionally been the slower time period with the Olympics and a bunch of NFL business and a bunch of other things going on here. But yet another week and yet another frenetic run of activity here that we're going to be taking a look at here. We've got uh, several major developments in the global sports data rights space, which is uh, increasingly becoming one of the most important and um, most active uh, portions of the entire industry. Uh, Several major developments in the uh, collectibles and trading card space. And the NHL has made a big move in terms of where they're going with uh, some key pieces of sponsorship uh, inventory. So we're going to be taking a look at all of that here. But first, we've got a interview with Kathy Carter. She's Chief Revenue Officer from LA28. This is the organizing committee for the upcoming 2028 uh, Olympic and Paralympic Games in Los Angeles. So stay tuned for that conversation with Kathy, and then Chris and I will be back on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Kathy Carter, Chief Revenue Officer for LA28, the organizing committee for the upcoming 2028 Olympic and Paralympic Games in Los Angeles, California. In this role, Carter leads the revenue generating functions for the multi-billion dollar organization, including sponsorship, ticketing, hospitality, and consumer products, among other areas. She also serves in a dual role as Chief Executive of U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Properties, a commercial joint venture between LA28 and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to control domestic Olympic rights between 2021 and 2028. Carter joined the organizations in 2018 after a lengthy run with Major League Soccer and sister commercial entity Soccer United Marketing, serving for eight years as SUMS president. And she was also an accomplished scholastic and collegiate soccer player herself. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, start with sort of the the current events here. We just concluded the uh, Tokyo 2020 Games. You were over there, had a chance to be part of the presentation to the IOC of obviously what you guys are working on and the upcoming plans. How did that trip go? How did the meeting with the IOC go? What were your impressions over there? Well, first of all, kudos to the organizing committee, the Tokyo organizers. I mean, I it's probably what keeps us up at night to think of the challenges that they have faced over the last really 18 months as they postponed and reorganized and organized a second time, really, the Olympic Games and, and coming up here tomorrow, uh, the Paralympic Games. So first and foremost, credit goes to them for having been able to pull it off and the IOC as well for being their partner in that. We did have an opportunity, Casey and I, Casey Wasserman and I, to present to the session and just give some general updates on where we are with regard to LA28 and some of the planning and where we are in our maturation, if you will. We are now seven years out, which is sort of the traditional 
timeline for most games. So we had a, a four-year additional amount of time that I think we hope we've used very wisely. And uh, we like to say we're in the on-deck circle now. Kathy, as you mentioned, it was a great accomplishment for the games to come off in Tokyo, given all the challenges. There were a lot of other highlights, including the U.S. performance and et cetera. But there was also some challenges, as you know, at least in the U.S. in terms of television ratings. What do you think drove those ratings, which were a bit lackluster? And how do you think that impacts the way marketers think about the future of the Olympics and that opportunity? Well, you know, I think that we're all fixated on linear and sort of the digital or cable ratings at the moment, but I don't know that we've actually been able to fully unpack the engagement story. And I think what we've seen across all of the digital platforms was a massive amount of engagement and certainly the athlete voices coming to really highlight the experience of the Olympians and the experience behind the scenes, if you will. And so I think we're in a process now, and certainly NBC, I think, is taking a moment to say, okay, how does that start? What's the next iteration of how we present the Olympic and and certainly the Paralympic Games? I think the day-to-day consumption in the linear and digital is going to start to blend even more together. I think that uh, this is, a, I would say, a transition uh, transition event. And we have also don't focus on the fact that it was on the other side of the planet. So those time zones were nothing to, to joke about. I mean, we're talking really upside down in terms of what our traditional viewing habits would be in the United States. So I think they'll get through a lot of this. And I think some amazing key learnings about how uh, consumers want to engage with the Olympics and certainly with the Paralympics is going to come as a result of this. So being a glasses half full person, I look at this as actually an opportunity for us to continue to build momentum as we head towards 28. So I think NBC is going to certainly figure out what the next step is in all of this. And I think there's no doubt in my mind that the engagement around the Olympics, the engagement around the Paralympics is as strong. We're starting to just see some initial readouts of how the sponsors and those that are actually strategically invested in, in the games, how they're actually faring with some of their programs, which is actually not down at all. In fact, it's up. And so I think the, the story, I think, it has many chapters. And so I, I, I tend to say, let's not uh, read it uh, through one chapter and think that that's the, the entire novel. So just to close the book on Tokyo before we go even deeper into obviously what you guys are working on with uh, LA28. The sponsorship story over there and the uh, corporate activation, obviously very challenged as well, given everything with the pandemic and and some of the on-site things, just not able to be at their usual level. But as you got over there, what did you sort of glean from what did happen from a sponsorship standpoint? And perhaps what did you sort of take away from that trip that may be applying to LA-28? Well, that's it's a good question and, and somewhat hard to, to say that that was the focus of, of the trip because clearly many of the, the sponsors and advertisers took a very muted approach, certainly in market in Tokyo. And clearly there was not an activation area, which would be a traditional, whether that would be the PNG family house or many of the myriad of, of partners that would have truly activated on the ground. So from, from my standpoint, I think it was much, it was a different look at the games. We did spend a decent amount of time with a number of the top partners and really starting to see most importantly for us was how did they integrate through the, to deliver the games? And I think that's one of the key ethos, ethoses, if you will, of, of the LA 28 games is this idea of co-creation. And I think that certainly the partners did a lot of that in Tokyo, which is a little bit behind the scenes, something that isn't perhaps as easy to see from a consumer standpoint, but clearly something that they can use from a B2B perspective. So whether that was 
Intel with a number of technology integrations, whether that was the domestic partners and how they helped deliver the games. There were some really good things for us to start to identify as key learnings as we think about 28 and really the journey to 28 and how our partners begin to co-create the games with us. Kathy, talking about that journey to 2028, how well positioned do you think you are now seven years out in terms of securing the deals that you want to secure? Are you ahead of the game? Are you behind schedule? Do you feel good about where you're at? How, how would you assess the status of, of where you are right now in terms of, of key partnerships and deals? Sure. Well, well, certainly from a metric standpoint, because typically an organizing committee hasn't even stood up until now, we're definitely ahead. That being said is until we actually close the books, I'll always think we're behind just because that's the nature of my personality. So I think we are feeling very good. You know, we announced Delta as our first founding partnership prior to the pandemic. Through the pandemic, we've announced Comcast and most recently Salesforce, Deloitte, Nike, and Ralph Lauren as renewals with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee Team USA. So we're feeling really good and really good as well about the, the tenor of conversations that we're having. Certainly also the, the big deal that, that uh, we, along with Paris and Milan, along with the IOC, announced around hospitality. So generally speaking, I think we're in a real, we're really far ahead of what a normal organizing committee would, the position that they would be in. But, uh, but like I said, Until we're done, we're not done. So that's the pressure we put on ourselves and the pressure we put on the team. Going a little deeper into the Salesforce uh, agreement specifically, how do you see that and maybe some others that could be coming on the pike uh, be uh, impactful in using technology to drive engagement and help tell the story of LA28? Well, you know, both uh, Salesforce and Deloitte, part of the, the conversation is when you look at the entirety of the Olympic and Paralympic movement, just so many people that are engaged with the, whether it be through an individual sport or the movement in its totality. But what has been lacking is really a, a really concrete effort towards that overall customer integration and engagement. And so that's really where we believe that Salesforce and Deloitte are going to help us supercharge what we want to do to to have a have the most sizable addressable fan base across all of the sports be they large medium small whatever the size is and we think that there's a real opportunity for us to think differently relative to the consumer the customer the fan who wants to engage with whether it be archery or it be track and field or it be swimming or it be rowing, but we have a real opportunity to figure out ways to customize and, and, and create real engagement strategies for fans and give them what they want, when they want it, and where they want it. So that's a big, big part of what we're thinking about with certainly Salesforce and Deloitte. And I think that's the, the blueprint for what you'll start to see with a number of other partners that'll come aboard is how do they help us get smarter faster and actually build towards 28 with an eye towards even legacy beyond 28? And how do we leave both the community of LA in some cases or the Olympic or Paralympic movement better than we found it? So that's really sort of our starting point with a lot of these programs and a lot of these partnerships. Kathy, are there some other key categories in addition to technology where you're really looking at the deals from the lens of not just how much money can you pay, but what can you do to really drive fan engagement? Are there other categories that come to mind that are really important for that kind of dual approach? Well, I mean, it's the it, you can imagine what those are. Technology is a big piece of what we're really focused on right now because there's just so much opportunity given that we believe we're at the nexus of 
Silicon Beach, Silicon Valley, and Silicon Alley. So we talk a lot about that with the IOC. And of course, they've got the top partners that continue to, to renew. And then there's a many traditional companies and, and categories that you would expect us to take a look at and some of those that are emerging. So we're looking at everything and trying to, to find the ways to present these games and to continue to support the development of Team USA in ways that have perhaps not before been thought of. You've also put together an athlete marketing platform as you're standing up this organization and continuing your business. If you can give an overview of what that effort looks like and how is that proceeding so far? Well, you know, what I think these games, the Tokyo games really showcased for us was something that we started a couple of three years ago, probably, which is this idea that the athletes need to be in the center of everything that we think about and everything that we do. They truly are the heroes of the story. And, uh, actually at the forefront of things that we're all facing in humanity, whether that be mental health, mental wellness, whether that be the pandemic and how that's affected our work-life balance and how they trained through those things. And so fortunately, when we started the, the, the journey with uh, both the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic properties in LA 28 and in partnership with Team USA, we identified really that athletes needed to be more front and center. And we needed to find ways to provide opportunities for them to partake, if you will, in some of the economic opportunities that are hard to unearth across a 700 plus team with uh, varying levels of notoriety. Um, And so we started building towards a platform. And what started for us was we realized that almost 95% of the athletes lead go into an Olympic Games and just start there without any level of representation. And of the 5% that end up with representation, some of those happen as a result of the games. And so we realized that there was a a large number of athletes that really couldn't gain access to corporate America, if you will. And so we started, and this also sort of segues nicely with what's been happening in the collegiate space around name, image, and likeness, uh, which sort of came in, I don't know if if we were, uh, you know, they say, I'd rather be lucky than good. So our timing tends to be pretty good here, but... uh, we, we started to develop a, a technology solution in a marketplace where we could actually bring athletes into a centralized database and actually provide both partners and, and even licensees an opportunity to engage more deeply with those athletes. And so uh, we've had 500 Olympians and Paralympians and hopefuls now sign up for the program. And we're starting to see the very first phases. I mean, we're in a pilot phase right now, but for example, some 200 plus athletes that we, for the first time ever, have actually created a name and number t-shirt program. And it's very pedestrian today, but the as, as, as many will know, the, the underpinnings of that are very difficult to put in place. But now we've got it in place, which means now we can actually provide opportunities for athletes to make money as a result of their, their name or their image or their likeness, whether that be through licensing products or whether that be through commercial relationships with sponsors. Kathy, another new initiative involves the way you do hospitality, and now On Location will play a major role in the games. How will that impact you from both a business and from a fan experience standpoint, the involvement of On Location and the new way that hospitality is going to be administered? Well, I'll tell you, that's the the biggest piece of this journey, I'd say, that just the sheer effort it took to aggregate those rights together along with the IOC and the organizing committees that are prior to us, so starting in Paris and then with Milan as well as ourselves. But what it does is it actually creates a standardized system across the entire, across the world, where it's the same product, it's the same economic, it's the same investment, 
whether that's in Australia, that's in Russia, or that's in the United States. And so what it means is that we can create a consistency of delivery, not just for high net worth individuals that want to buy, but also for stakeholders. And so whether that is, and, and we'll build key learnings through the process and clearly start to understand how do we actually aggregate buyers into a centralized database that makes it easier for us to now deliver valuable experiences for those customers. So it's, it's actually, I mean, really a tremendous effort by our team and by the IOC and the others to, to put it together. But what we think is the fan wins because it will be a consistent experience as opposed to what we've typically seen as we came into this, which was from games to games, you just didn't know what kind of experience you would get if you were buying a package or if you wanted to go see the games. So we're hoping, and I believe that we will prove successful because it's a model. It's not a new model, but it's new to the Olympic and Paralympic games. We do believe that the consumer, the fan is who will, who will most benefit from this. From an LA 28 perspective, you know, we obviously have incredible venues across Los Angeles with amazing premium opportunities. And so the time for us to now build and actually to have experts that are focused day in and day out on actually creating the opportunities that, that fans want to purchase into, uh, people who want hospitality along with those tickets. It's just, from our perspective, we think it's going to be a win-win all the way around. So obviously, long runway before your event, nearly seven years here. But as we go through the rest of this year, the rest of Q3 and into Q4, what are your immediate top priorities uh, the front end here as you continue about your business? Well, we've had a good year in terms of, for us, it's always first and foremost, making sure that we've solidified the revenue that will empower our games and actually pay for our games. Different than some organizing committees, you know, we are really a private slash public entity and therefore have a very, very keen focus on how we are cash flow neutral, if, if not even cash flow positive. So that becomes a really important piece is to make sure that we've generated the revenue that will allow us to spend the dollars that are required to put on the events of this magnitude. But as we're starting to get that in a, in a really good position, we're starting to turn our attention both to the foundation of the organizing committee. And so whether that be hiring this year, our CFO, and now recently our CIO. Uh, so what we need in, term, in terms of strategy and really plans to head into the what will eventually become execution, but then setting up a lot of the different uh, elements that will lead into the game. So finalizing what's called the preferred plan around all the venues and all the delivery of the games and Today, we don't yet have the core sports program prove it, that has been voted on. It will be in, we think, 2022. So there's still some open ends as it relates to what we've got to do to deliver the games. So we're very, very focused on making sure that we have all of the right people, all of the right strategy in place for the delivery of the games. So that allows us then the opportunity to go after some of the impact areas for us where we think we can actually impact the community of L.A., very positively, whether that be through our youth sports program or what will be many other programs that we will unveil here in the next year. And also then make sure that we can, we like to say, change the game and think differently about how we can actually leave, like we said, like I said earlier, the Olympics and Paralympics and the, and the organizing of those events in a different place than when we started. You know, we have a saying inside of our, our shop that, um, you know, we didn't invent having good ideas. Everybody wakes up with great ideas about how to evolve the Olympic and Paralympic movement. But because we've got a no-build Olympics, because all the facilities are in place and we had more time to start the strategic planning, 
uh, we think that that gives us a leg up, if you will, for how and what we can do to actually think about things differently. Kathy, you talked about the LA community and youth programs and things that you would be doing to benefit that community. But could you talk a little bit more uh, broadly about what you hope will be the legacy of these games for Los Angeles and sort of the long lasting impact of, of this, this initiative? Yeah, you know, that's part of what we're working on now. I mean, number one is that, you know, we talk about sustainability in a lot of ways. Um, and first and foremost is financial sustainability for us. It starts with the fact that we actually are, we host and, and deliver a very responsible games. But then that will lead very quickly into how and what we can do from a climate perspective. And certainly because of the facilities, we've got a concept of radical reuse, uh, which is something we're, we're keenly focused on. And then it'll move from there to how do we take what we initiated already through the, the youth sports program and the economic investment, but how do we actually then start to build even further along those lines and, and build greater impact for the kids in the community of, of Los Angeles. So we're starting to really put in place those plans, but certainly, you know, I think the first and, and foremost in our mind is how do we actually make sure we deliver these games in a fiscally responsible manner? That's our first legacy because it means that the city of LA, the community of Southern California, the state of California, our country, nobody has to worry about what we do to deliver the games themselves. I mean, it will be a collective effort. Uh, and then from there, we'll start to identify what happens as a result of that, that first and foremost important objective. Well, a lot yet still to unfold here in the coming years. Uh, we're going to be, of course, continuing to track that across uh, all the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Kathy Carter, Chief Revenue Officer from LA28, for spending this time with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly. We want to thank Kathy Carter again from LA28 for spending that time with us here. And shifting to the news of the week here, as uh, we had mentioned at the outset here, been a uh, frenetic August here with usually uh, some of the slowest times in the industry, uh, you know, just some industry rocking kind of deals here. And uh, let's start in the data space here. There were several... uh, major headlines here just in the span of uh, a couple of days here uh among them sport radar the global's uh, data and technology company they had been uh working on a potential spac merger for a number of months that did not work out and instead they filed for an in- initial public offering and they're going to potentially be going now the route that they're one of their key competitors genius sports did in uh hitting the uh public markets. And Genius, meanwhile, just hours after uh, those uh, Sport Radar documents were filed, they made an announcement that they'd hired Steve Bornstein, known to many listeners uh, on this podcast as the former uh, head of uh, ESPN and formerly the head of media at the National Football League, uh, been around for a number of years and one of the most accomplished and senior executives in the entire space. And then uh, right on the heels of that, uh, Sport Radar locked down a uh, major renewal with FanDuel and making sure that uh, they're uh, fully in place as the preferred supplier to one of the major sports books in the United States. So just a lot happening here. And it really just, uh, you know, we'd already been talking a lot about the data market this year, and particularly with what the NFL did and and doing their big new global data rights deal with Genius here. But you sort of put all this together here. A number of takeaways here, I guess, first and foremost, right at the uh, the outset here, 
increasingly data is, uh, you know, the dollars may not necessarily match the main TV revenues or some of your bigger sponsorship deals, but really just signals how important this segment is, uh, has been and is increasingly becoming in the overall sports industry, particularly with the advent of betting. It has become increasingly important, and it's really the fuel of a lot of the betting activity and a lot of the engagement activity that I think the teams and leagues are hoping are really going to drive the business going forward. You know, I'd worked for Steve for a number of years at the NFL, so know him well, and I think that was a very interesting hire for Genius, in part because Steve obviously has a great track record of success at the NFL and ESPN. He's got a lot of great relationships, but also in an industry where uh, there's a lot of froth and sizzle and headlines. Steve's the kind of person who really focuses on the underlying business. I remember when I worked for him, he said it's all about making as much money as you can for as long as you can. It wasn't really about headlines. It wasn't about chasing the next deal. So I think having that kind of presence at Genius, I think, will be helpful to them. Yeah, although your point is well taken that he, you know, obviously he had all of this success because he stayed true to the fundamentals, but also could command a room, still can command a room and has that force of personality. And you you combine this hire with what Genius already has with David Levy as chairman. You've got a couple of older media guys, you know, really heading up that company along with Mark Locke and others. You know, it sort of points to, again, the importance of the data market going forward, but also the ability to have relationships. Uh, you know, David Levy and, and Steve Bornstein, uh, as you correctly indicate, uh, you know, very long uh, tenured successful executives here. But these are guys that have decades long relationships at the various major properties here that the data guys may not necessarily have that just writing a big check, which is obviously helpful in the case of situation like the NFL deal and stock that went along with it as well. But, you know, those relationships and that kind of insight uh, that these kind of guys can bring really important. Especially in the, in the U.S. And when you think about a genius is a UK based company, Mark is really from that area. Sport Radar is a European-based company. Obviously, both those entities have big presence in the U.S., but for Genius to have Levy and Steve as key players here in the U.S. market, I think that's very helpful given, given the growth that's uh, available here. Yeah. The other sort of takeaway is every time you see one of these big announcements, each of these companies and others, uh, competitors, they're all sort of pointing to their technological prowess here, that it's not just sort of the old uh, model of just distributing out scores as they happen here, that not only is the live real-time data, but all the various things that you can do with it and put it into different places and create new products, particularly again with the advent of betting, that, you know, having having real scale and resources and technological prowess here, again, beyond the dollars, beyond the relationships, another thing that's going to be really important. I agree. I, and I think these companies, these data companies do often position themselves as tech companies, but what they're also becoming, and this speaks to Steve and, and David Levy, they're becoming to some degree media companies as well. They're distributing data and even globally, they oftentimes distribute live game feeds along with the data. So Steve's involvement, David Levy's involvement might also suggest a stronger move into the media space, the affiliate marketing space, all of these areas which involve content beyond just the, the pure data, but all of the associated content that is, is relevant. 
Yeah, and and you look at some of these other sports beyond baseball. I think baseball, you know, it's such a stat-driven uh, game to begin with. They've done pretty well over the years of using that pitch FX data and and their tracking data to build narratives around that. That has not really happened heretofore in the other sports. And I think you hit on another really important thing that you've got these, you know, senior experienced media guys, experienced storytellers who can come in and try to, again, build, like you're saying, build content operations and, and build some better storytelling. You know, we've had several years of next generation stats data in the NFL and, you know, for a variety of reasons, which we could spend a whole other podcast on, you haven't really sort of built a a compelling storytelling arc around that yet. And it's going to be interesting to see if that now comes to fore in this new deal with Genius. In addition to the storytelling arc, the other big frontier is this live in-game betting, which in Europe is a huge deal. And the U.S. has just begun to percolate. And again, marrying the live broadcast, the live stream with the betting opportunity is something that's going to drive a lot of opportunity. And again, I think Steve and David and others who have media experience are going to be help, helpful in, in making that become a reality. So shifting to the, from the world of data to the world of trading cards and collectibles, uh, this is a space, again, we've talked about a lot in prior episodes of the podcast. It's just been red hot. This is something that's really enjoyed a historic boom during the pandemic. This is a something that is really lent well, unfortunately, to the or fortunately for the industry. But as we dealt with through the unfortunate public health crisis, this is a form of fandom that's been safe for people to engage with and something that sort of has helped them keep them connected to their favorite sports and teams and players, while it's not necessarily been possible to go to a game or go to a game in the same fashion as before. So several major headlines coming out of this space in, in recent days, a, uh, more than 100-year-old card of uh, late Hall of Famer Honus Wagner, the T206 card that used to be in the cigar boxes long, long ago that for for many years was sort of the holy grail of the industry. It had been supplanted by several other cards uh, in recent months as the most expensive card sale ever. That's uh, the, the Wagner T206 has reclaimed its crown as a copy of that card just sold for more than $6.6 million. So that was one major headline coming out of the space. Uh, Tops, which is in the process of going public, came out with a quarterly earnings report that showed major increases across the board, net sales, adjusted earnings, net income, the, the whole bit as the uh, card space continued to expand. But coming right off the heels of that, Tops is in the midst of uh, getting a major blow. And this is uh, just coming out as we're taping this podcast that uh, Major League Baseball, along with the MLB Players Association and Players Associations in football and basketball, are all in the midst of transitioning their exclusive card rights to a new entity joint venture that they're going to be buying into with Fanatics and that Fanatics is going to operate. This is particularly uh, historic in the case of baseball, where Tops has been synonymous with that sport for seven decades where they've had these rights. And, you know, so many of us grew up on Tops baseball cards and for them to be losing these rights just in the midst of them in the, uh, in the process of going public. 
their SPAC deal is going to be voted on by shareholders in just a matter of days. There's just a, a lot of froth happening in this in the market right now, where again, clearly there's a uh, a lot of activity happening in the space, but there's going to be potentially some real losers on the on the flip side of this. There certainly will be winners and losers, and a lot of the attention we've seen in the NFT space has grabbed headlines, but really this traditional collectibles area has also seen some amazing growth and some amazing players come into the space. So clearly Fanatics, a big, enormous player in the sports space. Uh, uh, Steve Cohen buying a Collector's Universe and then Golden, Blackstone in the mix buying a, a grading company, Tops with the SPAC. Uh, these are big, big companies and, and really now new ones getting involved in this space, driving values and driving a lot of excitement for people who own uh, trading card assets or own businesses related to trading cards. So I think it's good news overall for the industry that we're seeing these shifts and new and new players in. But obviously, Eric, it is there are some winners and losers. And if you lose a, a big licensee like MLB or the MLBPA, it's, it's not a good day. Yeah, and and even more turbulence. Another headline that I failed to mention before, where PWCC, this is one of the the major marketplaces in the space, particularly for the high end investment grade stuff. They had had a very active business over the years on eBay, doing literally tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars each year, and uh, thousands of active listings on any given day. They've been accused by eBay of shill bidding um, and inflating their own auctions, and and all of that activity has now been pulled from the site. And so PWCC is going to be taking those thousands of daily listings and probably creating their own version of a digital marketplace to send them. So again, just a a lot of uh, noise and activity in the market, and and it's going to take a while to sort of shake itself all out. But the the common thread through all of this is that collectors just can't seem to get enough of the stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would also mention is in addition to some of these uh, more established players getting into the collector space, you have some emerging companies like Starstock, some of the fractional ownership uh, platforms, more and more markets out there to provide liquidity for trading cards for collectibles, which again, uh, you know, helps drive prices, helps create more uh, collectors. And so in, in general, I think we're seeing just a tremendous amount of momentum and shifting and, and moving in the space and, and transformation, which uh, which we hadn't seen in this collectible space for, for years. In fact, the, uh, Eric, they have the big national convention, uh, trading card convention in Chicago every year, and it was held uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it was record turnout, unbelievable, apparently, uh, you know, number of people there and the kind of deals that were being done. And so it's it really is a, a boom time for the collectibles market. Yeah, and, there, and there's a lot of creativity going on in the space here with a lot of new products and one-of-a-kinds and, and not just the NFT stuff that we've obviously talked a lot about, but again, in the physical realm and doing you know these special refractor cards or you know embedded with one-of-a-kind merchandise. And, and there's a lot of creativity going on in that space and rethinking just the traditional slabs of cardboard and moving. And we've already moved well beyond that for quite some time now, but the creativity in the space continues to go on and, and manifest itself and the kind of numbers that you're talking about at events like this convention. And that's going to be one of the real interesting things here to watch with this whole new Fanatics company. And as they sort of move beyond the traditional apparel business into a bunch of different areas, certainly 
things like the trading cards and betting and a number of other things that they're looking at. But I'm going to be very interested to see what kind of innovation they're looking to bring to the card space and the kinds of different products they want to develop with these rights over the years. You know, they certainly are going to, in my view, uh, be innovative and find new products and new opportunities. And then the question is, how do some of the the traditional companies like Tops, uh, like Upper Deck, like Panini, respond, innovate, compete. And so I, I think it generally will be good for the hobby as, as new products uh, get launched and get out in the marketplace. But I think it's, it's fanatics involvement in anything, given their power and stature, is going to cause a reaction and going to cause a, a need for other competitors to, to find new solutions and new opportunities. So Moving from the uh, collectible space to the the world of hockey, normally this would be a dead time of the year for uh, for the National Hockey League, right in the middle of their off season, and we're still a number of weeks away from even uh, camps and preseason getting going in advance of the start of the next season this fall. But the uh, the long expected uh, news has finally arrived that uh, beginning with the 2022-23 season, they're going to be moving into Jersey ads. And on a certain level, this is not a quantum leap in the sense that the NBA has obviously already been doing this for a number of years. And then the NHL started doing helmet ads to help recoup some uh, lost sponsorship income during the pandemic. And that proved to be so successful. They've continued that program along here. But the jersey thing in hockey, it just it hits a little bit different, and people have some very uh, special and revered feelings about their hockey sweaters, particularly for the original six franchises. And so this is going to be a real tricky balancing act, I think, for the league, where the, obviously there, there's a huge revenue opportunity, and collectively we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, across the uh, the, the thirty two teams. Uh, now with Seattle coming in as well. But again, people, you know, I put it right, certainly right up there with baseball uniforms and maybe even above that, certainly well beyond the kind of reverence people have for basketball uniforms that, you know, just the hockey sweaters, it just hits different here. So it's going to be a tricky balancing act here, I think, for Gary Bettman and his team. Yeah, I'm sure they've thought it through carefully. But there probably will be some fan reaction, and some of that might depend upon the kinds of sponsors that ultimately buy these ads. Are they going to be a bunch of betting companies or cryptocurrency companies, or is it going to be uh, traditional brands? And how might people feel differently one way or the other based on who's on those ads? But but I think for the NHL, like all the other leagues, I mean, it has been a tough you know year and a half now, and so I think the new revenue that is going to be driven there is is clearly important. And we're also kind of entering into a a situation here going into the fall where we're not really sure what the uh, Delta variant and COVID will mean for in-stadium attendance again. And again, we're all optimistic, but there also could be some setbacks in certain markets where crowds need to be contained or smaller or or maybe even eliminated. So I, I think this is a prudent move from a financial standpoint. Yeah. Now, just to sort of circle back to your prior comment there, there are some rules that are coming into place here that not unlike some of the things we've already seen with the NBA, there's going to be certain rules where you're not going to be able to do alcohol and cannabis, CBD and those kinds of things. And the betting piece of this, it's going to be limited to home markets only because they obviously don't want to have a situation where somebody's taking a a hockey jersey with a betting ad into another market for an away game where that state may have not yet legalized it because obviously we're still in this state-by-state patchwork framework here. So there are pieces coming into place that are going to govern all of that. 
you know, again, just but, you know, sort of he's thinking things like the obvious, you know, having a Duncan logo on a, on a you know, bru- you know, the iconic Boston Bruins jersey, uh, you know, with the hub and spoke logo there. It's just it, it's going to be a little weird. And, I, you know, and people in other territories have gotten over this. And I may be being a little precious about this. And, you know, certainly in other parts of the world that, you know, they, they've gone into uniform advertising well beyond all of this. But there's a certain reverence, again, to those original six sweaters. Yeah, there certainly is. And and you're right, it depends on how the creative looks and, and how it fits. And I, as I understand it, Eric, this the ad is going to be bigger than the NBA jersey patch. So again, it may be all in the execution and, and there may be some teams that are going to be conscious of that as they select the sponsor and the creative artwork. And then there may be other teams that, you know, they, they want the money and who's going to pay us the most. And we're going to have to live with that logo on our jerseys. Again, I, there will be certainly some fan pushback, but I would say if there's any year or time when fans might be more tolerant of the need for that kind of advertising or extra revenues, it's probably in the middle of a, or the end of hopefully a pandemic. So from that perspective, this may be the only time that they could actually get something like that done without a huge backlash. I w- yeah, that's all fair. Now, the other interesting thing to watch through all of this is as we go through the various cycles and understand the initial cycle, not unlike the NBA is going to be for an initial term of three years. But as the NBA went from the first term to the second, there was a lot of turnover across the league that it was much more common for teams to find a new sponsor for cycle two than keep the incumbent. And whether that situation plays out the same way or differently in NHL is going to be interesting to watch because I, I was sort of surprised how much turnover there was in the basketball jersey deals. Yeah, I mean, turnover would generally not seem like a good thing uh, because it might indicate that on one side or the other, there wasn't the happiness with the with the program. I think it's important to look at a jersey, in my opinion, jersey sponsorship as one part of an activation plan for a brand, not the sole piece. And so if you're looking at that jersey brand as like that's all you're doing or that's the main thing, you know, maybe there isn't uh, the same level of effectiveness if you're as, as if you're combining that with other kinds of activation and promotion and advertising and, and integration with the team. So uh, again, I think these things will be a bit of a work in progress, and perhaps there'll be some learnings gained from some of the sponsors that are involved in the NBA program, and and, and maybe make these even more effective. Yeah, I would agree. And I think a great early example of that in basketball was what the 76ers did with StubHub, where they did a big new ticketing deal five years ago with StubHub to allow that company to get into primary ticketing. And then StubHub was one of the initial Jersey sponsors as well. So there was a real sort of deep level integration across the franchise. Now, StubHub has just lost those ticketing rights and a lot of things have changed and Scott O'Neill has left. And, you know, that, that organization is in the midst of a lot of transition now. Now, but your point is well taken that um, a Jersey deal, regardless, should be the beginning of a program and not the end. Yeah, and I think maybe maybe broadening this a little bit. I, I think as I as I think about the NHL, I think this is this is a good revenue type program for them. They obviously did some good TV deals uh, several months ago. They just uh, announced, I, I believe, Eric, that they're selling their stake in in BamTech, or so they're, they're getting paid for their stake in BamTech. So on the one hand, I think there's some really good moves in terms of economics and driving more revenue. But on the other hand, we did mention the the issue that maybe. Uh, in front of us in terms of attendance if, if COVID doesn't go away. And also, you know, they, they've got a lot of deals in the RSN space and we'll have to see how 
the RSN market continues to uh, to struggle or or have some challenges as people drop from cable, and there there needs to be a new model there. So I think there's both good and bad as you look at at the future. And then also the new the new national level deals coming in, particularly with uh, Turner coming into the fold for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that in general, uh, the leagues like to find new ways to commercialize uh, their assets. And once things become a little bit accepted as uh, being a, a, a little bit more commercially forward, I think the fans tend to forget about it and, and, and move on. So we'll see how much reaction they get to this. So as we close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we want to do a little bit of a look ahead in the space here and get a sense of what is uh, catching our eye. And uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Yeah, what was interesting to me, Eric, is the uh, the NFL, my former uh, employer, uh, just announced they had hired a new chief data and analytics officer. I don't know if they've ever had a chief analytics or data officer before. They hired a gentleman named Paul Ballou, who had been at Ford. Uh, he's going to be reporting into Chris Halpin. And it looks like, getting back to the original theme with Genius and Sport Radar, this issue of data and the importance of data and the level of sophistication around data is going to become even more important to the NFL and to the teams. And so I'm curious as to where within that broad spectrum Paul is going to be focusing, but it was, a, I think, a consequential move, and we'll, we'll see where he takes that. Yeah, at any time you get, you're in an organization trying to grow even further and you can bring in really smart people, and, and Paul seems like a really smart guy here, obviously, given his background, that's probably going to be a net, big net ad for them. Yep, absolutely. And then from my standpoint, I'm going to return to a prior theme as well with hockey here. And as we're taping this, uh, just getting news that the uh, Arizona Coyotes after this forthcoming 21-22 season are going to be needing a new home, that uh, their year-to-year arrangement uh, with the city of Glendale for their existing uh, venue is not going to be renewed beyond that. And this has been a situation that's been really brewing for years. uh, We've got a new headline on this, but the, the Coyotes situation in Glendale just never has worked out as anybody had hoped. And a lot of people, you know, from Bettman on down within the sport, and certainly a lot of political leaders in Arizona have all tried to chop some wood on this. We've had multiple ownership groups, multiple executive teams, and trying to solve that hockey thing in Glendale is just not come together. And so it's just a matter of what, where are they going to be playing? Is it, are they going to stay in the market or is this going to amp up discussions of them potentially moving to another market? So it's really going to bear watching. Yeah. To me, that's the most interesting question, Eric. Is it just a matter of finding another facility or building another facility in Arizona, or does this spur discussion of a wholesale movement out of the state? And certainly when, when that happens, things get interesting and different cities try to make their bids and, and it involves different constituents and politicians and league uh, governance. But that will be the thing I think that, that we'll be watching here over the next several months is, is this just a facility issue where they've got to figure out how to finance or or put together a new a platform there in, in Arizona? Or does this become something where a number of cities are looking to attract a new NHL team? And then it becomes a, a more interesting story, but probably a bigger headache for, uh, for Gary Bettman. Yeah. And even amid everything we just talked about with the league's uh, short-term challenges and, and need to drive more revenue, long-term, this is absolutely a growth entity. And if they do end up looking beyond the Phoenix area, there will be no shortage of suitors. Absolutely. I, people are still looking to buy. And there really hasn't been a lot of turnover of NHL teams. There haven't been a lot of teams available. And I think that's that's reflective of people enjoy owning them. And, uh, and it is a growth business. Right. 
Well, that'll wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. Uh, We thank you for spending this time with us. And as always, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.